Aphorisms 92-107 to of Book 1 of the New Organon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Shaw. The New Organon by Francis Bacon. Translated by James Spedding, Robert Leslie Ellis, and Douglas Denon Heath. Aphorisms 92-107 to of Book 1. Aphorism 92. But by far the greatest obstacle to the progress of science and to the undertaking of new tasks and provinces therein is found in this, that men despair and think things impossible. For wise and serious men are wont in these matters to be altogether distrustful, considering with themselves the obscurity of nature, the shortness of life, the deceitfulness of the senses, the weakness of the judgment, the difficulty of experiment, and the like, and so supposing that in the revolution of time and of the ages of the world the sciences have their ebbs and flows, that at one season they grow and flourish, at another wither and decay, yet in such sort that when they have reached a certain point and condition they can advance no further. If, therefore, any one believes or promises more, they think this comes of an ungoverned and unripened mind, and that such attempts have prosperous beginnings, become difficult as they go on, and end in confusion. Now, since these are thoughts which naturally present themselves to men grave and of great judgment, we must take good heed that we be not led away by our love for our most fair and excellent object to relax or diminish the severity of our judgment. We must observe diligently what encouragement dawns upon us and from what quarter, and, putting aside the lighter breezes of hope, we must thoroughly sift and examine those which promise greater steadiness and constancy. Nay, and we must take state prudence, too, into our counsels whose rule is to distrust and to take the less favorable view of human affairs. I am now, therefore, to speak touching hope, especially as I am not a dealer in promises, and wish neither to force nor to ensnare men's judgments, but to lead them by the hand with their good will. And though the strongest means of inspiring hope will be to bring men to particulars, especially to particulars digested and arranged in my tables of discovery, the subject partly of the second but much more of the fourth part of my instauration, since this is not merely the promise of the thing, but the thing itself, nevertheless, that everything may be done with gentleness, I will proceed with my plan of preparing men's minds, of which preparation to give hope is no unimportant part. For without it the rest tends rather to make men sad, by giving them a worse and meaner opinion of things as they are than they now have, and making them more fully to feel and know the unhappiness of their own condition, than to induce any alacrity or to whet their industry in making trial. And therefore it is fit that I publish and set forth those conjectures of mine which make hope in this matter reasonable, just as Columbus did, before that wonderful voyage of his across the Atlantic, when he gave the reasons for his conviction that new lands and continents might be discovered besides those which were known before, which reasons, though rejected at first, were afterwards made good by experience, and were the causes and beginnings of great events. Aphorism 93. The beginning is from God. For the business which is in hand, having the character of good so strongly impressed upon it, appears manifestly to proceed from God, who is the author of good, and the father of lights. Now in divine operations even the smallest beginnings lead of a certainty to their end. And as it was said of spiritual things, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, so is it in all the greater works of divine providence. Everything glides on smoothly and noiselessly, and the work is fairly going on before men are aware that it has begun. Nor should the prophecy of Daniel be forgotten touching the last ages of the world. Many shall go to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Clearly intimating that the thorough passage of the world, which now by so many distant voyages seems to be accomplished, or in course of accomplishment, and the advancement of the sciences are destined by fate, 
that is, by divine providence, to meet in the same age. Aphorism 94. Next comes a consideration of the greatest importance as an argument of hope. I mean that drawn from the errors of past time and of the ways hitherto trodden. For most excellent was the censure once passed upon a government that had been unwisely administered. Quote, that which is the worst thing in reference to the past ought to be regarded as best for the future. For if you had done all that your duty demanded, and yet your affairs were no better, you would not even have a hope left that further improvement is possible. But now, when your misfortunes are owing not to the force of circumstances but to your own errors, you may hope that by dismissing or correcting these errors a great change may be made for the better." In like manner, if during so long a course of years men had kept the true road for discovering and cultivating sciences and had yet been unable to make further progress therein, bold, doubtless, and rash would be the opinion that further progress is possible. But if the road itself has been mistaken, and men's labor spent on unfit objects, it follows that the difficulty has its rise not in things themselves, which are not in our power, but in the human understanding, and the use and application thereof, which admits of remedy and medicine. It will be of great use, therefore, to set forth what these errors are. For as many impediments as there have been in times past from this cause, so many arguments are there of hope for the time to come. And although they have been partly touched before, I think fit here also in plain and simple words to represent them. Aphorism 95. Those who have handled sciences have been either men of experiment or men of dogmas. The men of experiment are like the ant. They only collect and use. The reasoners resemble spiders, who make cobwebs out of their own substance. But the bee takes a middle course. It gathers its material from the flowers of the garden and of the field, but transforms and digests it by a power of its own. Not unlike this is the true business of philosophy, for it neither relies solely or chiefly on the powers of the mind, nor does it take the matter which it gathers from natural history and mechanical experiments and laid up in the memory whole as it finds it, but lays it up in the understanding altered and digested. Therefore, from a closer and purer league between these two faculties, the experimental and the rational, such as has never yet been made, much may be hoped. Aphorism 96. We have as yet no natural philosophy that is pure, all is tainted and corrupted, in Aristotle's school by logic, in Plato's by natural theology, in the second school of Platonists, such as Proclus and others, by mathematics, which ought only to give definiteness to natural philosophy, not to generate or give it birth. From a natural philosophy pure and unmixed, better things are to be expected. Aphorism 97. No one has yet been found so firm of mind and purpose as resolutely to compel himself to sweep away all theories and common notions, and to apply the understanding, thus made fair and even, to a fresh examination of particulars. Thus it happens that human knowledge, as we have it, is a mere medley and ill-digested mass, made up of much credulity and much accident, and also of the childish notions which we at first imbibed. Now if any one of ripe age, unimpaired senses, and well-purged mind apply himself anew to experience in particulars, better hopes may be entertained of that man, in which point I promise to myself a like fortune to that of Alexander the Great, and let no man tax me with vanity till he have heard the end, for the thing which I mean tends to the putting off of all vanity. For of Alexander and his deeds, Eschines spoke thus, Assuredly we do not live the life of mortal men, but to this end were we born that in after ages wonders might be told of us. As if what Alexander had done seemed to him miraculous. But in the next age Titus Livius took a better and deeper view of the matter, saying in effect that Alexander had done no more than take courage to despise vain apprehensions. And a like judgment, I suppose, may be passed on myself in future ages, that I did no great things, but simply made less account of things that were accounted great. In the meanwhile, as I have already said, there is no hope except in a new birth of science, 
that is, in raising it regularly up from experience and building it afresh, which no one, I think, will say has yet been done or thought of. Aphorism 98. Now for grounds of experience, since to experience we must come. We have as yet had either none or very weak ones. No search has been made to collect a store of particular observations sufficient either in number, or in kind, or in certainty, to inform the understanding, or in any way adequate. On the contrary, men of learning, but easy withal, and idle, have taken for the construction or for the confirmation of their philosophy certain rumors and vague fames or airs of experience, and allowed to these the weight of lawful evidence. And just as if some kingdom or state were to direct its counsels and affairs not by letters and reports from ambassadors and trustworthy messengers, but by the gossip of the streets, such exactly is the system of management introduced into philosophy with relation to experience. Nothing duly investigated, nothing verified, nothing counted, weighed, or measured is to be found in natural history, and what in observation is loose and vague is in information deceptive and treacherous. And if anyone thinks that this is a strange thing to say, and something like an unjust complaint, seeing that Aristotle, himself so great a man and supported by the wealth of so great a king, has composed so accurate a history of animals, and that others with greater diligence, though less pretense, have made many additions, while others, again, have compiled copious histories and descriptions of metals, plants, and fossils, it seems that he does not rightly apprehend what it is that we are now about. For a natural history which is composed for its own sake is not like one that is collected to supply the understanding with information for the building up of philosophy. They differ in many ways, but especially in this, that the former contains the variety of natural species only, and not experiments of the mechanical arts. For even as in the business of life a man's disposition and the secret workings of his mind and affections are better discovered when he is in trouble than at other times, so likewise the secrets of nature reveal themselves more readily under the vexations of art than when they go their own way. Good hopes may therefore be conceived of natural philosophy when natural history, which is the basis and foundation of it, has been drawn up on a better plan, but not till then. Aphorism 99 Again, even in the great plenty of mechanical experiments, there is yet a great scarcity of those which are of most use for the information of the understanding. For the mechanic, not troubling himself with the investigation of truth, confines his attention to those things which bear upon his particular work, and will not either raise his mind or stretch out his hand for anything else. But then only will there be good ground of hope for the further advance of knowledge when there shall be received and gathered together into natural history a variety of experiments which are of no use in themselves, but simply serve to discover causes and axioms, which I call experimenta lucifera, experiments of light, to distinguish them from those which I call fructifera, experiments of fruit. Now experiments of this kind have one admirable property and condition. They never miss or fail. For since they are applied, not for the purpose of producing any particular effect, but only of discovering the natural cause of some effect, they answer the end equally well whichever way they turn out, for they settle the question. Aphorism 100. But not only is a greater abundance of experiments to be sought for and procured, and that too of a different kind from those hitherto tried, an entirely different method, order, and process for carrying on and advancing experience must also be introduced. For experience, when it wanders in its own track, is, as I have already remarked, mere groping in the dark, and confounds men rather than instructs them. But when it shall proceed in accordance with a fixed law, in regular order, and without interruption, then may better things be hoped of knowledge. Aphorism 101. 
But even after such a store of natural history and experience as is required for the work of the understanding, or of philosophy, shall be ready at hand, still the understanding is by no means competent to deal with it offhand and by memory alone, no more than if a man should hope by force of memory to retain and make himself master of the computation of an ephemeris. And yet, hitherto, more has been done in matter of invention by thinking than by writing, and experience has not yet learned her letters. Now no course of invention can be satisfactory unless it be carried on in writing. But when this is brought into use, and experience has been taught to read and write, better things may be hoped. Aphorism 102. Moreover, since there is so great a number an army of particulars, and that army so scattered and dispersed as to distract and confound the understanding, little is to be hoped for from the skirmishings and slight attacks and desultory movements of the intellect, unless all the particulars which pertain to the subject of inquiry shall, by means of tables of discovery, apt, well-arranged, and, as it were, animate, be drawn up and marshaled, and the mind be set to work upon the helps duly prepared and digested which these tables supply. Aphorism 103. But after this store of particulars has been set out duly and in order before our eyes, we are not to pass at once to the investigation and discovery of new particulars or works, or at any rate, if we do so, we must not stop there. For although I do not deny that when all the experiments of all the arts shall have been collected and digested and brought within one man's knowledge and judgment, the mere transferring of the experiments of one art to others may lead, by means of that experience which I term literate, to the discovery of many new things of service to the life and state of man, yet it is no great matter that can be hoped from that. But from the new light of axioms, which having been adduced from those particulars by a certain method and rule, shall in their turn point out the way again to new particulars, greater things may be looked for. For our road does not lie on a level, but ascends and descends, first ascending to axioms, then descending to works. Aphorism 104. The understanding must not, however, be allowed to jump and fly from particulars to axioms remote and of almost the highest generality, such as the first principles as they are called of arts and things, and taking stand upon them as truths that cannot be shaken proceed to prove and frame the middle axioms by reference to them which has been the practice hitherto, the understanding being not only carried that way by a natural impulse, but also by the use of syllogistic demonstration trained and inured to it. But then, and then only, may we hope well of the sciences, when in a just scale of ascent, and by successive steps not interrupted or broken, we rise from particulars to lesser axioms, and then to middle axioms, one above the other, and last of all to the most general. For the lowest axioms differ but slightly from bare experience, while the highest and most general, which we now have, are notional and abstract and without solidity. But the middle are the true and solid and living axioms on which depend the affairs and fortunes of men, and above them, again, last of all, those which are indeed the most general, such I mean as are not abstract, but of which those intermediate axioms are really limitations. The understanding must not, therefore, be supplied with wings, but rather hung with weights, to keep it from leaping and flying. Now this has never yet been done. When it is done, we may entertain better hopes of the sciences. Aphorism 105. In establishing axioms, another form of induction must be devised than has hitherto been employed, and it must be used for proving and discovering not first principles, as they are called only, but also the lesser axioms, and the middle, and indeed all. For the induction which proceeds by simple enumeration is childish. Its conclusions are precarious, and exposed to peril from a contradictory instance, and it generally decides on too small a number of facts, and on those only which are at hand. 
but the induction which is to be available for the discovery and demonstration of sciences and arts must analyze nature by proper rejections and exclusions, and then, after a sufficient number of negatives, come to a conclusion on the affirmative instances, which has not yet been done or even attempted, save only by Plato, who does indeed employ this form of induction to a certain extent for the purpose of discussing definitions and ideas. But in order to furnish this induction or demonstration well and duly for its work, very many things are to be provided which no mortal has yet thought of, insomuch that greater labor will have to be spent in it than has hitherto been spent on the syllogism. And this induction must be used not only to discover axioms, but also in the formation of notions. And it is in this induction that our chief hope lies. Aphorism 106 but in establishing axioms by this kind of induction, we must also examine and try whether the axiom so established be framed to the measure of those particulars only from which it is derived, or whether it be larger and wider. And if it be larger and wider, we must observe whether by indicating to us new particulars it confirm that wideness and largeness as by a collateral security, that we may not either stick fast in things already known, or loosely grasp at shadows and abstract forms, not at things solid and realized in matter. And when this process shall have come into use, then at last shall we see the dawn of a solid hope. Aphorism 107 And here also should be remembered what was said above concerning the extending of the range of natural philosophy to take in the particular sciences, and the referring or bringing back of the particular sciences to natural philosophy, that the branches of knowledge may not be severed and cut off from the stem. For without this, the hope of progress will not be so good. End of Aphorisms 92 to 107 of Book 1. Recording by Alan Shaw.